Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Breachside Broadcast, home of the finest boxcasting either side of the breach. Today's story brings us Earthside to the Three Kingdoms. This region of the world has a long and glorious history, but has recently come under the occupation of the Guild Imperial Bureau. While many keep their heads down and attempt to avoid the wrath of the Guild's troops, some refuse to submit. Rebellion is brewing, and its implications extend to both sides of the breach. I hope you enjoy part one of From the Ashes, right after this word from our sponsor. This episode of the Breachside Broadcast is brought to you by Promise Provisions. We stock a wide array of goods that you won't find anywhere in Malifaux City. Pining for some authentic gunpowder pearl tea from back home? You won't find it anywhere else this side of the breach. Even asking for it in Malifaux can have you executed for treason. But at Promise Provisions, we know how to keep a secret. Word will never get back to the guild, and that's a promise. From the Ashes by N.A. Wolfe Never forget where you came from. That was the last thing they had told him before the roar of the arcane vortex deafened him. It came in a sudden flash, and before he knew what had happened, he was sucked through the shimmering tear in the fabric of reality. His insides were on fire, and his hair stood on end, as if an electric current had passed from his fingers to his toes liquidating every single organ in his body as it snaked its way from top to bottom. The world spun around him as hues of impossible colours flashed before his eyes. He thought he could see shapes in the swirling chaos, but he felt so violently sick that he could spare no effort to interpret any of them. Every particle of his body was rushing to escape, but he stood firm by pure force of will, determination surpassing his own incomparable pain. And then it was over. He was on the other side. Wang Wei gasped lungfuls of pure mountain air as his sight and hearing returned to him. Panting on all fours and feeling as though he were about to retch, he looked upward to the wink of dying stars pulsing in an alien sky. He was on earth no more. Never there did the heavens look so infected, bleeding with streaks of miasmic emerald, Craggy peaks and scorched ground stretched for miles in the pale light of twin moons. In the vast wake of this jagged landscape, it took a moment for Huang Duwei to notice the saffron-robed figure looming over him. The man wore a cracked porcelain mask, and he held out a thin blanket in one hand and a glass bottle of clear liquid in the other. Drink this, 
It will help the sickness. There was no warmth in the Tarakaja's voice. Wang Wei stood up with a groan and raised the bottle greedily to his lips, downing its contents in a single gulp. Now, he said, taking the empty bottle away, tell me why you are here. He pressed the blanket into De Wei's hands. The answer came to him easily. It was what they had told him to say, but he fought not to make it sound pre-rehearsed and mechanical. My home has been destroyed, my country shattered to pieces. There's nothing left for me anywhere else. He clutched the frayed fabric. The guard nodded at him and allowed him to pass, whispering beneath the faceless mask. Never forget where you came from, Huang Dui. In this new world, memories will be all we have left. We will need them to make it our own. The memories were strong indeed. The Three Kingdoms, Earthside, Day Zero On the eve of the harvest moon, brilliant hues of orange, pink, and crimson cast a tapestry across the hazy skyline as day transformed into dusk, staining the red-tiled roofs of the tallest temples with pale patches of ochre light. In the fading crur of the setting sun, the streets of Chongo's capital exploded with a cacophony of bangs and shouts as firecrackers and celebratory cannon blasts erupted in gouts of flame. Blood-colored streamers hanging from every doorway in the streets caught the eye, each decoration inscribed with characters of good luck and prosperity in bold black strokes. But this day was not a day of celebration for the massive crowd of protesters screaming in the central square. It was a day of revolution. The Laohu stood erect on the gallows, and began the meeting in his booming voice magically magnified to project itself over the shouting of the throng. Greatness is measured only in absolutes. The gods hand greatness unto us through the mandate of heaven, and we hold on to it forever. You are born with greatness, or you are not, and it is all up to fate. Fate alone will determine our future, the crowd echoed in agreement. Shouts from every direction rang in his ears louder than the gongs. Kill the foreigners. Liberate Chungao. Freedom begins today. Laohu cast a steely gaze at the three guild redcoats bound and gagged at his feet, kneeling before the crowd gathering about the gallows. He drew upon the frenzy of the mob, and with contempt he spat at the golden rams pinned to their chests. All three stared at the wooden planks of the stockade, unable to look up at the crowd shouting adamantly for their demise. A stinking shower of rotten fruit, mud, and sewage flew up at them in a putrid deluge. These foreigners, Lao Hu continued, have come into our country to prove that the mandate rests upon their shoulders and not ours. But they are dangerously mistaken, he growled, extending his arms to the crowd with a wan smile. He bent down and held one of the guards close by his throat. Scared and lifeless, they kneel before you. Besmirching our harvest festival with the presence of foreign devilry. They even dare to bring in the worst of all sins to corrupt our people for their profit during our sacred day. Look, he let go of his subject with disgust. 
hauling one of the other prisoners to his feet and reaching into the satchel tied to his back. Dalauhu pulled out a bag of crushed poppies. Poisoning our people with opium, the nectar of hell itself. And there's more, he thundered. He reached into the pouch again and pulled out a pebble so small that no one could see it distinctly. But they all knew what it was. Linghanshi. Soulstone. The crowd grew immediately silent. We fight like dogs for these rocks. Thousands of years of noble history reduced to naught but barbarity. Were we not the center of the world once without them? Without them, were we not living in elegant palaces of lacquered wood and jade while the West lived in huts of mud? Well, I say we have had enough. Enough! Dalauhu smiled. He had rehearsed well indeed. They had told him exactly what to say, and it was working. The crowd began to raise their fists in the air, shouting and screaming even louder than before. Those at the back formed a solid wall to impede the wave of guild officers now scurrying onto the scene. Wardens, peacekeepers, and other riot-control constructs steamed behind them in the chill autumn air. The guardsmen began forcing the crowd apart, drawing swords and batons. Some fired pistols into the air to scare the protesters into dispersal, but it was to no avail. They could not make it through the masses swarming the gallows to save their captured comrades. Dalahu's voice rose again. The mandate was once ours before the Black Powder Wars ended and the guild occupied our lands. The gods are testing us. Will we not answer? The crowd screamed its assent, pumping its fists towards the heavens as it roared and shouted over and over, This country is ours. Smiling once more, Dalauhu concluded, The imperialist foreigners must die. We start today with these three dogs. Fate has decreed it, and no one cheats fate. The speech ended with a flash of steel and three jets of arterial spray. The crowd roared its approval as the parched wood of the gallows drank deeply its crimson feast. With disgust, the bodies were kicked off the stockade into the depths of the throng, ripped apart and trampled in a haze of blood. And yet... Dalauhu was gone before a squad of guild guard broke through the mass of bodies and began firing indiscriminately into the crowd. Not even when the Eastern Division of the Guild Imperial Bureau starved, branded, and horribly lacerated the few survivors of the massacre could they identify the name of the man who had led the struggle. The survivors could not even recall what he had looked like. A porcelain mask had disguised his face. Behind their tears and blood, they could only call him the Boxer, for the clawed metal gauntlets he wore on each hand, so much like the talons of a ravenous tiger. The day of the Boxer's rebellion was the beginning of the end for Chung No one knew that better than the doctor, Huang Duwei, who had watched the entire massacre from the window of his apothecary, wondering the whole time whether or not such barbarity had doomed his country more than the Guild ever could. Looking up, Dewey saw the others arriving through the tearing groups. 
Men, women, and children emerged in a flash, some holding rucksacks close. Many families nursed infants or pets. Most were worn and starved, but a few remained upright and proud. As the families from the three kingdoms took their first steps upon Malifaux's earth, many retched or clasped their stomachs as though about to vomit, until they realized that they had navigated safely across the tear and stood upright in relief. Others were screaming, hands clasped over their temples or eyes, blue fire dying from their pupils. A few moments and shuddering breaths later, they too stabilized. A poor few were not so lucky. A series of covered white lumps were attended by weeping men and women, the sheeted bodies of those whom the journey had claimed. A rough hand placed itself on Wei's shoulder. He looked up quizzically, still holding his blanket close to fight the chill mountain breeze. You are the doctor, are you not? We have been expecting your arrival. The speaker was a woman. She was shorter than he was, but her size made her no less intimidating. Though her features were soft and her face pale and heart-shaped, the soot and grime coating her thin nose and pursed lips gave away the distinct impression that this woman was not to be trifled with. She wore not the traditional kipao customary of women from her country, but instead a pair of dark green-gray slacks and a stained white tank top that clung tightly to her muscular torso, which was tattooed with rippling dragon scales. Her hair swept the ground behind her in a long braid that culminated at the top in a bun held tight with thorny pins. They glittered in the moonlight like the flanges of a perverse crown. I am the doctor you sent for, he stammered. Let us hope for your sake that you are. Dalauhu told me that you would be joining us. I have much to ask of you. Come with me. The Three Kingdoms Earthside. Five weeks occupied. The executions in the capital's central square triggered an open rebellion. Mass anti-guild protests had erupted in almost every city. Each had been more fervent than the last. All the while, the guild hunt for the man known only as the Boxer was futile. No matter how many houses were raided, suspected affiliates tortured, or bribes paid, he remained invisible like a toxin indistinguishable from the lifeblood of the country. The Guild Imperial Bureau, frustrated with its failure, funneled even more guardsmen into the rowdier cities under the pretense of asset security. And so the lives of three faceless cogs within a vast machine condemned the lives of hundreds of thousands, not only by blade or black powder, but also through the harsh scrutiny of Guild oversight and the unpayable debt stipulations of the post-rebellion peace treaty. The outer villages, decentralized hotbeds whose loose governance provided a haven for anti-guild groups, were targeted and starved into submission. Grain had been part of the reparations tax levied by the overseers of the Imperial Bureau. It was to be sent straight through the breach to feed Malifaux's mining colonies. With no grain available in the city, the burden of reparations had been placed on the peasants, those who were furthest from being in any position to pay them. 
Once the farmers made a weary journey to the coast to load the last bushels from the autumn harvest onto the ravenous guild steamships docked at the treaty ports, their families were left with naught but a meagre share for the winter. The frosts were soon approaching, and both man and swine rotted away with little distinction from each other in the murderous cold of the shortening days. Tales of cannibalism, and even more harrowing, of infanticide were common. There had once been ghost stories told in times of abundance as a reminder of a worse fate. Now they were all too real. While farms decayed, the opium trade flourished. Many, under the impression that the end had come, resigned themselves to stupor and malaise in smoky opium dens spotted across both the countryside and the cities like sores. The legation quarter of the capital, which housed the guild ambassadors, was especially protected not only by elite men, but also by great constructs the like of which most in the Three Kingdoms had never seen. People heard tell of bat-like creatures with telescopic heads that could screech an alarm the moment they saw an intruder, or four-legged steel beasts with cat-like features that could scurry up the exposed flanks of buildings, harpoons swiveling from their backs and ready to fire. Perhaps the most profane were the bipedal constructs which seemed to make a mockery of the human form. With huge shields in one hand, and broadswords the width of an entire man in the other, they marched through the desolate streets alongside the guild platoons. It was the fear of the protests, and the great metal beasts designed to ruthlessly squash them, that Wang Wei stayed out of the capital. While once he travelled weekly to secure various herbal remedies to administer to his patients in the countryside, he now paid his neighbour Ming Yu to bring them instead. She was a tinkerer and a peddler and she made the journey bi-weekly to sell whatever trinket she either accumulated from late-night scavenging or cobbled together from her own designs. "'You mustn't be afraid of those constructs. You're becoming a recluse, you know,' she told him one evening with a frown as she deposited the goods for DeWay on his kitchen table. Her choice of clothing always mystified him. Although she wore the conic hat of a rice farmer, her tattered clothes were distinctly westernized. Loose pants and a teal blouse hung from her lithe figure, and strapped to her belt and thighs were innumerable pouches full of tiny parts and gadgets. The lamp illuminated an eclectic bundle of herbs, gnarled roots and small jars, whose juices sloshed and bubbled sluggishly. Ming Yu offered them to Dewey with a flourish. Tell me, how are they different than the Kamenu which pull the wagons during our festival parades and protect us from the demons during the winter? How are they different than the things I make? She pulled out a tiny, fluttering lump from one of her pockets and stroked it affectionately. It was a brass cicada which chirped and waved its elegant wings once wound. I don't like them, Dewey decided flatly over the buzzing of Ming Yu's little companion. Our constructs. They have the souls of our ancestors to guide them. The Westerners speak of some abomination called, uh... He stumbled to find the right words. Uh, logic engine. The constructs of our people are fueled by those who watch over us. They are family. The tools of the Westerners are just tools, made to kill. Ah, she said knowingly, you fear them because you do not understand them. You are too narrow-minded. I hate the Westerners as much as you do, but there are lessons to be learned from them. Imagine how our own constructs could be tailored with a few scavenged parts, or with a logic engine of their own. She gazed at her cicada thoughtfully through the lens of her cracked monocle. You know, sometimes I wonder whether or not tradition condemns our people, 
We are surrounded by an enemy who sees itself as superior, precisely because we regress to old habits when fighting a completely new threat. With a look of disdain, she suddenly crushed the cicada in her hand, putting an end to its chirping. The wave flinched. We have to tear down the old to build the new. The way was silent. Ever since the guild occupation grew more aggressive after the boxer executions, his already limited liberties under the laws of the imperial court had been stripped. His stomach had been virtually empty, and his country remained engulfed in flames like a corpse destined for destruction upon a pyre. The new was certainly very far off. At last, after careful deliberation, he said, The old ways are still worth fighting for. I want to see any Western doctor heal the sick as I have. What do they know of curing the spirit as well as the body? He scoffed and abruptly stood up to snuff out the candlelight, leaving Ming Yu a little abashed despite the five silver coins he placed in her outstretched hand. As he led her to the door so as to console himself alone in the darkness, three knocks alerted the way to the presence of a visitor who would change his life forever. His name was Dalauhu, and he was dripping blood onto the packed earth floor of the doctor's home. The woman who he now followed blindly into the shadows called herself Mei Feng. She led the way through the craggy ten peaks under the cover of darkness, drained as he was from his journey through the breach. They could only travel by Delios. Under the light of the trickster moon, she had told him urgently, lest unwanted eyes watching the band of refugees pouring almost nightly from the Ten Peaks spoil the secrecy of the tear. The sun was just poking over the jagged peaks when the bustling town came into view beyond the mountain ridge. They had marched all night to reach the town of the Piedmont, the way stumbling in the darkness and May almost floating above the ground with the balance of a phoenix mid-flight. This is promise, Mayfeng said as they finally walked down a dirt road that served as a central avenue to the settlement. The way's eyes grew wide with surprise. It was unlike anything he'd seen in his village earthside. Gone were the earthen homes and their roaring hearths, ancestral shrines, stables for swine or acres of paddies to which he'd been accustomed. Instead, wooden and cement buildings, sturdy and new, each with verandas and porches connecting with the main street, sprung forth from the dirt. In the distance, the desert stretched for miles in every direction, its earth cracked and raw. Despite the paralyzing mysteriousness of this strange new world, the way felt slightly more at ease here. The plodding of horses' hooves, the click of wooden sandals, and the shouts of street acrobats, not to mention the calls of vendors selling juicy dumplings, steaming pork buns, or candy-coated fruits and insects made him think of home. Even the air smelled comforting. It was acrid and smoky, with faint, sweet hints of incense, roasted meat, and burnt sugar, just like it was in the capital. About half of the people in this town seemed to be from the Three Kingdoms. As he followed Mei Feng in awe, the Wei picked up not only tongues from Chunggo, Chosen, and Nippon, but also local dialects so specific that even he could not understand them. Before he could listen any further, Mei Feng grabbed him by the arm and dragged him forward with the ghost of a smile on her lips. All the building signs were written in both the common tongue of the guild and Han Si characters, with broad strokes and cursive addenda. 
They barely walked 100 yards, but the way had already seen signs for saloons, brothels, a jail, and restaurants serving both Western and Three Kingdoms fare. Most notable were the general stores selling sundry goods, which any resident of Malifaux City could have immediately identified as illegal earthside contraband, items whose sale usually resulted in execution. Yet they were advertised freely here, and as it seemed, with pride. This town is unlike any other in Malifaux, said Mayfeng. The guild have control on this side of the breach, just as they do Earthside, but they are strongest and most consolidated in Malifaux City. We are the furthest from there of any settlement. For some, the journey can take several weeks or even months by foot. Most don't make it out this far, and those who do are certainly not with the guild. She chuckled mirthlessly. Laziness and sloth are the best secret keepers, so long as we don't succumb to them. I don't understand. Who built this place? The way was looking enviously at diners sitting on the veranda of a noodle shop, indulging in a rich food which he had not tasted since before the guild occupation. Our organization did. After we discovered the second breach, we realized that we had an avenue to smuggle in those from Chungo, afflicted by the Black Powder Wars. She smiled at him. We give them hope and a new beginning. And in exchange... At that moment, a woman covered from head to toe in soot knocked away aside and threw herself in the dust at Mayfeng's feet. Her tear-streaked face was clenched with anguish, her words constricted with pain. May, where is he? You promised I would see him again if I paid my dues. You promised. Tell me now, please, where is my son? She clutched at Mayfeng's ankles. Her tears cutting parts of clarity through the grime caked on her face. Everyone in the street shuffled away awkwardly, pointedly keeping their eyes off Mei Feng and her supplicant. They continued their business as if such an event were a normal occurrence. Before Mei could answer, the woman was thrown away from her with a violent shove from behind. You do not have permission to touch Mistress Feng, Shu Tzu. Do that again, and you may never see him again in this life. The voice was thunderously loud. It belonged to the biggest man Da Wei had ever seen. He was a head taller than Mei Feng, and his torso was three times as thick. He thumbed a large coal shovel strapped to his back with his sausage-like fingers, which made him even more intimidating than his rotund face. He was completely bald, but for a braided queue dangling over his shoulder. Let her be, Kang. Mei Feng shot him a meaningful look gesturing almost imperceptibly at the way before she placed a soothing hand on his forearm. May extended a hand to the woman splayed in the dust. Get up, Tsao Shu. The money you sent was used to cover your son's medicine. I am sure he has recovered and will return to you soon. Thoroughly terrified, the woman picked herself up from the dust, cast one look of fear and hatred at both Mei Feng and the man called Kang, and shuffled away, limping in the dust. Who was she? The Wei asked, still trembling. Her son was one of my rail workers, injured in a construction accident, she answered shiftily. She wants to find out what happened to him after she sent us the money needed for his recovery. Looking phased for the first time since he had met her, May quickly changed the subject. The Wei, this is my closest companion, Kang. He keeps an eye on me and oversees the rail workers. Kang bowed his head ever so slightly into Wei's direction. 
This is him then. The doctor Lahu sent. Lahu says he can bring people back from the point of death. She looked up at the sky in disbelief. Funny. I thought he would be bigger. What they say must be true. The guild's really starving our people outside, aren't they? You look like a plucked chicken. The way gulped and nodded. Kang put on a big smile. Well then, there's plenty of food here, and plenty of opportunity. Especially for you. We have been waiting for someone like you for a long time. I was told that I could be a doctor here in exchange for my passage away from Earth, and for keeping Lauhu safe, the way wavered. Quite right, boomed Kang, clapping him on the back. There is a rail line being constructed to connect Promise with the ruins of Chastity, an abandoned town beyond the outskirts of Malifaux City. Between Nephilim attacks and mining accidents, we are in need of a good physician to look after our wounded. Nephilim, he asked. Ah, replied Kang knowingly, with a glance at Mei Feng. They are the locals. You must have many questions. Best not to ask too many, though. The smile faded for the briefest second. Do your job, and everything will be just fine. This time it was harder for him to disguise the insincerity that wavered in every syllable. Still, if you can do what Lao Hu says you can do, you shouldn't worry. May's brother is never wrong. The Three Kingdoms, Earthside, Eight Weeks Occupied The Way's hut was packed. Seated within its smoky confines were at least a dozen people, all wearing robes of bright saffron bound with jet-black leather straps. In the center of the ring sat a great bubbling pot in which vegetables, noodles, and even pork, so rare in this time of famine, drifted about in abundance. Lao Hu's wounds had finally begun to heal. He loved telling the story of how he had gotten them. Although the gory details seemed to violate the norms of polite dinner conversation, he could always elicit a raucous laugh from his mealtime audience whenever he did. Somehow the story was different with every retelling. Tonight he told the others that a stray pistol shot meant for his head had struck a powder keg during one of his raids, and that the explosion had left him horribly burned but it took twenty of the rams with him in a righteous fireball. There was little to suggest that this version of the story had any more truth to it than the others. On the night the way treated him, Lauhu had suffered from deep cuts across his chest and arms inconsistent with any explosion, like he'd been in a struggle with a multitude of swordsmen whom he'd been very lucky to best. The way put his head in his hands, as Lauhu described his brave dash to this village while suffering his burns, to the amazement and the approval of the others. At the end of his dramatic retelling, Lao Hu looked at the way as he did every time and added, There's thanks to this man that I'm still here to enjoy such a feast tonight, thumping him on the back with a chortle for good measure. This part at the very least was true. The way had saved his life that night, and when he awoke, Lao Hu had thanked the way profusely. Impressed and amazed, he insisted that the way apply his healing powers to some of his friends. And so the way fell deeper and deeper into the conspiracy, eventually coming to know the true identity of the boxer and his cohorts as he healed them after each of their raids. 
The more he knew about the rebels, the less he liked them. They had taken over his home and occupied his village, claiming that the inconspicuousness of the small farming hamlet so close to the capital made it an ideal hideout. It was thrilling at first, to be a part of the rebellion that had inflamed all of Chung'o. It had even given him great pride, knowing that he was supporting the people risking their lives in the Boxers' Rebellion to save the country from the clutches of the West. But once the rebels began to demand food and shelter from those who were already struggling to pay the reparations mandated by the Guild, they began to outlast their welcome. Guests are like fish, went the old Three Kingdoms proverb. After three days, they really start to reek. Rumours abounded that the revolutionaries stole vegetables and swine at night. The meal that the way ate guiltily tonight solidified these fears. As the memories came flooding back, the way said nothing, but he shifted uncomfortably and slurped his soup without tasting it, as the thugs made themselves cosy in his home once again. Ming Yu seemed enamoured with Lao Hu, and took no notice of any of these rumours, or of the way, who continued to shift uncomfortably in his seat. Hardly eating. I was there that night he came for healing. He was such a mess, she said to the crowd over the bubbling stew. Dripping blood all over the place like prey shot by a Mongol arrow. He was so brave. The Lauhu seemed to appreciate the simile. And he grew even more excited. Yes, yes. Oh, there was blood everywhere. It was glorious. The steely glint in the boxer's eye made the way especially uncomfortable. He felt like a fly in a web, awaiting the return of a spider. I know it's hard to believe, but I swear to you that's what happened. The steel tiger claws on his hands glinted in the firelight as he raised them up in triumph. Don't you ever take those off, even to eat? Mingyu smirked. Never, Lao Hu responded, standing up to his full height and spilling soup from his bowl into his lap. The number of times people have tried to kill me at the dinner table. It is hard to trust anyone now the guild are offering such a tall sum for my head. Anyway, enough bragging. We have business to move on to this evening. Lao Hu and his companions put their bowls down. Doctor, why are you sulking? I was about to offer you a proposition, the boxer growled. It's nothing, said the way. It's nothing, said the way evasively, taking another slurp of soup. Please, tell me, what is on your... I know that our presence makes you uncomfortable, Dalau, who interrupted matter-of-factly. You seem to think that we have imposed much upon you and your village. It is no imposition when you fight for justice, replied Ming Yu, before the way could speak. We are honoured to host you, my boxer. Lauhu shot her an encouraging smile. Your companion seems much more excited about our cause than you do, he said to the way. Do you not believe in us? Knowing that he had no other answer, the way responded, Of course I do, but I am a doctor. I heal people, not encourage their deaths. I swore an oath to protect. Bandaging you up so you can go out and hurt others seems like a violation of my family vows. You cannot think like that, said Ming Yu fervently. The Westerners of the Guild have abused us. They assume that the mandate is theirs to take. Have you not seen what they have done to our people? They need to be exterminated. She eyed him imploringly. He took a deep, shuddering breath. I think, said the Wei, scrutinizing Ming Yu with a scowl. 
that you are dissatisfied with what little you have made of your life as an exiled daughter of a concubine, and that you are abusing the circumstances to inject some adventure into your life, no matter the cost upon your soul or those of others. You advocate openly for slaughter. The words came streaming out before he could damn them. If you think that these raids are the answer to our problems, then you have forgotten your own heritage, Mingyu. He scowled. She looked as though she'd been slapped in the face. Her eyes swam with tears, and away felt the slightest pang of regret, even as she shouted back, Then you are both a coward and a fool. For the God's sake, you pay your neighbor to buy you groceries because you are afraid of setting foot in our capital city. She glared at him with the fury of a wounded beast. Enough, interjected Lao Hu, placing a comforting hand on her shoulder. He turned to Dewey. Your concerns are not only natural, but also honorable, Doctor. We are indebted to you, truly. As I said earlier, I would not be sitting here with you had you not saved me from death. More importantly, the revolution would have been over, and the people of Xiamen, Guangxu, and Peking would never have had the courage to rebel with me. Thousands now fight for freedom knowing that I still stand. The others murmured their assent. It did not make the way feel any better. Whatever you may think of us, continued the boxer, I am about to prove to you that our cause is just. Oh, the way stood up, his fists curled. What can you possibly do to atone for all the lives you have taken? To recover all the food you have taken from those already suffering the consequences of your actions? To call your violent crusade just? He was shaking now. The boxer remained uncharacteristically calm. We can give our people a new beginning. What? We are not alone, Doctor. Those who are helping us can repay what we have taken tenfold. Our rebellion is not orchestrated by peasants and brawlers. He looked around the room at his companions. We are not laymen. Your table manners suggest otherwise, said the way. The boxer ignored this. Tell me, Doctor, have you ever heard of the Ten Thunders? Nonsense. A child's tale about a righteous storm from the gods that swept away a great tide of demons from beyond. What does that have to do with anything? Not a child's tale, he said with a smile. A real organization of protectors who keep the peace in the Three Kingdoms. They have been doing so for centuries in Nippon, Chongo, and Chosen. Now these great men and women support us in our struggle for freedom from the guild. The Ten Thunders are the Three Kingdoms' greatest rebellion against the West, and they have plans for the restoration of Chang'o. The way stood up. This is nonsense. Utter nonsense. I have helped you, Lao Hu, and you have repaid me and my people with theft and lies. And now you are telling me about fantasies and secret guardians? What can you possibly promise me about new beginnings, when your word is so riddled with deceit. Lao Hu stood up and clasped the way by the hands. If you do not believe me, then trust this. He placed a silk pouch in between the way's fingers. Open it. Warily, the doctor untied the drawstring. The green glow that came from within told him everything that he needed to know. He had never seen a soul stone before let alone imagined that one bigger than a pebble could possibly exist. 
The four in the pouch were the size of small plums. He drew the pouch shut again around its fortune. Where did you get these? Not even the guild has soul stones like this. Not even in the Imperial Treasury are there such things. Directly from the source, Dalauhu beamed. What are you saying? I'm saying that the Ten Thunders are in Malifaux. And that we are making it our own. No imperialists. No war. No unequal treaties from the West. From the ashes of our home Earthside, we will build something even greater than the 5,000 years of history before us. Ming Yu's eyes lit up. I knew there had to be something deeper to our struggle. Even when I had my doubts, I kept telling myself, Your faith will be rewarded, said Lao Hu kindly. He looked around at the other masked men. We are the Thunders, and we are strong. We would like to make you a proposition that you cannot refuse. I still don't understand. What are you asking of me? He took a deep breath. This brand new world, and everything it has to offer, can be yours too. There are thousands of people who grow tired from the pains of the Black Powder Wars. Refugees who have lost everything to the Guild. We are relocating them to Malifaux where they can start over. We want to take you with them. I... The Way did not know how to respond. Was any of this possible? A new life? A new world away from war, famine, and death? What will I do when I get there? You will have a proper medical practice of your own. We will supply you with everything you need, so long as you continue to work. That's all we want. Passage in exchange for your loyalty and service. He tried to gather his senses, but he could not think of what to say. He cast a glance at the bag of soul stones and handed them back with a look of regret. This whole time I doubted you. I'm sorry. There's no need to be, Doctor, said Lauhu, taking off his right tiger claw to shake the way's hand properly while receiving the bag in the other. It would have been too much to take in had we shared it with you earlier. We'd rather you think of us as uncouth thugs than guardians of a secret gateway to a new world. It's easier to keep secrets that way. He grinned. Just remember who it was that brought you there. Never forget where you came from. You think we have, but I promise you we haven't. Everything we've done is about preserving our heritage, just not on this earth. brings us to the end of another episode of the Breachside Broadcast. Join us next time for the conclusion of From the Ashes on Tales of Malifaux.